You're listening to audio from Stapleton Baptist Church. If you would like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit stapletonbaptistchurch.org. We pray this message blesses you. It's, it's the giving season. Like, are you known for giving gifts that are both meaningful and unique? There's usually someone in each family that's uh, just a better gift giver than the rest of them. I can tell you I'm not that person. Uh, I'm just not too creative in that way. Uh, the only gift that I'm proud of is that a few years ago, I started giving my dad a custom shirt each year with my son Owen's face right right on the center of it. Um, and no one else on, the, on this planet would want that gift, but my dad loves it, and it's hilarious when Owen sees him wearing it. He's so confused when he sees his face on someone's shirt. But outside of that, I don't claim to be much of a gift giver. I know last week I mentioned some statistics about the commercialization of Christmas and kind of the outrageous industry and business that it's become. But I don't want you to think that it's all bad to give gifts. Done right and with the right heart behind it, giving gifts can be a great thing. It can be a God-glorifying thing that shows our love for someone else. And during the Advent season, it's fitting to give gifts because we're celebrating the greatest gift that's ever been given to mankind. That is Jesus Christ, our Messiah. The passage that Mickey just read said, For us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. The Messiah is someone God gave. This is echoed in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God gave us Jesus He was a gift. And what makes a gift so special is that it's not required, nor is it forced. A gift is something given out of love, freely for someone. And if it's required, then it's not a gift. It's actually a payment. But the Messiah was a free gift. God didn't have to send him. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God would have been perfectly just and right to just let them suffer the consequences and all of mankind to suffer the consequences of sin. He didn't have to promise them anything, but instead God freely gave his son, Jesus Christ, as our Messiah to deliver us from sin and death. So thank God for his free gift. So this morning, as we continue in our Advent series, we're going to be looking at this greatest gift of all, the Messiah. Last week, we began by tracing the promise of hope of a Messiah back through the centuries and the millennia to the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. And there, in the midst of the fall, in the darkest moment of all of human history, hope emerged. God's grace shone forth in the darkness, and through the curse on the serpent, he promised that one day an individual from the offspring of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. That was the very first promise of a Messiah way back in Genesis chapter 3. And you can truly say that Christmas does begin in the garden. And from that moment on, you can trace, follow the thread throughout the whole Old Testament of God blessing, protecting, and preserving a line that would go down through Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah and David and on and on until we finally get to this woman named Mary giving birth to the Messiah. And that's the beauty of God's story. And it's, it's this story of promise that all followers of God have hoped in from the beginning. The faith of those in the Old Testament was based on the hope of a coming Messiah. Then still today, our faith is still based on the hope of the Messiah that did come. 
And that hope that we have for the forgiveness of our sins through Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. But that's certainly not the end of the story. There's even more beauty to discover in this person, the Messiah. Because it's not just a hope for the future. It's not just a hope for the future. Just as we saw back in our study of John, that the life that Jesus offers us is not just a life in the future, but it's also abundant life here and now. And it's something that we can experience every day. And it's the same with this hope. It's a multifaceted hope that has implications for us here and now. So I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9 this morning. Now, some people refer to the book of Isaiah as the fifth gospel. And they refer to it that way because of it contains so much prophecy throughout Isaiah concerning either the birth of Christ or the crucifixion of Christ or other things in between. So much of it that it's almost like another gospel. And not only does Isaiah and other places in the Old Testament give us prophecies concerning the circumstances of his birth, but more importantly, it gives us prophecies concerning the type of Messiah he will be. It's like God giving spoiler alerts for hundreds of years about what's coming. He, he is not a secret gift that's coming. We should know what it is when it gets here. And that brings us to this passage in Isaiah today. Isaiah's prophetic ministry uh, was around 700 years before Jesus was born. It was during a very tumultuous time in Israel's history. And God used Isaiah to pronounce judgment on Israel for its wickedness. God would use the pagan nations of Assyria and Babylon to bring his judgment on Israel. In Isaiah 6.13, it describes Israel, it describes its coming doom as being like a tree that's cut down and only the stump remains. In all its glory, all that's left now is a stump. But yet, God also promises hope because in Isaiah 11.1, he says that a shoot will come forth from the stump. I'm sure you've seen it before where you've cut down a tree and sooner or later there'll be other little shoots sprouting up out of that stump. There's still life there. And that's what's used to describe the Messiah coming from the stump. From what seemed dead and forgotten, God will bring life and hope. And right in between those two chapters, we have this here in Isaiah 9 that gives us this glorious description of the type of Messiah we will have. God tells us exactly the kind of gift that he's giving, but I want us to see it in its context. So look first with me at verse 2. Isaiah 9, 2 says this, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment of blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So let's stop there. What's that saying? Well, verse 2 accurately sums up the human predicament and the reason why we need a Messiah. It describes a people who are walking in darkness. And I don't think that's just referring to people walking around at night. The verb walking is used often through, especially in the Old Testament, as referring to how we live, how we move and carry ourselves through life. And darkness was often used to refer to the fallen creation and people walking blindly 
in the darkness of sin. And so here we have these people described as both being living in sin and unrighteousness, but also being located in a world encompassed by this darkness. But now something, something is going to happen. And it's going to be something that changes everything. They will see a great light and the light will shine on them. A light will pierce the darkness. The Apostle John echoes this in his prologue that, that we looked at almost a year ago in John 1.4 where he says, In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The light is greater than the darkness and light always brings understanding. It reveals things that the darkness hid and it brings hope and it brings life. Then it goes on in the next verses to describe a complete transformation of the life of these people. They're now a nation thriving, full of joy. Joy that you have at harvest time when everything is good and full. They've been set free from their oppressors. The tools used for bondage and oppression like the yoke and the rod and the staff have been broken, it says, as on the day of Midian. That's a reference back to the account of Gideon, where God uses Gideon and his tiny army to destroy the, the huge army of the Midianites. That emphasizes that this is something that's happening that can only be achieved through God's power. And then we come to verse 6 and surprisingly are told of this child. It's striking as you read it that all of a sudden, it's promised this individual, just like we saw in Genesis 3 last week. You read through the curse on the serpent, and all of a sudden it promises this individual, this offspring of the woman. And so it is here. And this child being given explains everything that's described in verses 2 through 5. All the good news in verses 2 through 5 is a direct result of this child coming. And notice that this is talking about a human. This was literally... Uh, a Messiah born as a baby, just like all of us were. We want to affirm that Jesus Christ was, in fact, fully human. He fully experienced life, just as we did, and yet was without sin. That's why his life was a sufficient sacrifice. The humanity of Christ does matter. That's an important part of our theology. And it says that the government will be upon this child's shoulders, now, that was an ancient expression about the responsibility of ruling and reigning. Government was seen as a weight or responsibility to be borne on the back of the ruler. And how fitting that we're reading this passage in an election year. Isn't it good news that the government will be upon his shoulders? I mean, look at the mess that our, polit our politics are in in our country. Sometimes it seems like you're watching a cartoon or a sitcom or a horror film, depending on how you look at it. But it's actually real life. Some leaders are great. Some leaders are terrible. And even the great ones have limits and they come and go. And we go through this cycle of anxiety and uncertainty again and again. And if you look around the world, there's really not any places that are much better off. The only places where there doesn't seem to be political chaos is in dictatorships. And well, those are terrible for other reasons. But what about this promised child? What kind of ruler will he be? What kind of Messiah are we being given? Will he be just as fickle and infallible as any other human ruler? Will he be prone to impatience or violence or dishonesty or vice? When you read through the Gospels, you see that the Jews themselves were primarily imagining a Messiah who would come and restore Israel to its former glory. He'd overthrow the oppression of the Roman Empire. 
But we find that God's promises, we have a Messiah that's so much greater than that, with a mission so much more vast than just that. And we have here four particular names that are given to describe what kind of Messiah this will be. Four titles bestowed upon him. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And I want us to spend the majority of our remaining time looking at each of these four titles. And just as verse 6 emphasizes the humanity of Jesus, these titles combine to emphasize the deity of Jesus. He was and is both fully God and fully man. We can't deny either one of those things. And we'll see from these titles that he's actually described in terms that we most often associate with God the Father. So first it calls him Wonderful Counselor. This title combines both the idea of being wonderfully extraordinary in ability, but also having wisdom. Israel had had plenty of intelligent, skillful rulers, powerful men, but very few acted wisely. Even Solomon, who was the wisest of them all, in his later years unwisely followed after foreign women and were led astray by the gods that they worshipped. And these rulers often led Israel into deeper sin and rebellion. But this ruler is described as having the wisdom to lead. Isaiah 28, 29 says that the Lord is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Psalm 78, 72 describes God as a shepherd, shepherding his people with an upright heart and skillful hand. And then we all know Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. That's a very comforting verse. And you know why it's comforting? It's, it's comforting because it reflects his wonderful counsel. If, if he wasn't a wonderful counselor, then we couldn't trust that he does have good plans for us or that those plans would even come about. This verse is only good news if we do have an infinitely wise and good counselor as our Lord, and we certainly do. The truth is, much of our Christian hope rides on the fact that we do have a wonderful counselor. He is a wise, capable leader, able to lead us to victory. And ultimately, he will lead us home to heaven with him. Think of Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That's true because he is a wise ruler and working everything together in his wisdom and counsel. And is there anyone in here this morning that can testify to the fact that we do, in, that we do in fact have a wonderful counselor as our Lord, that his ways are higher than our ways, that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Can you look back over your life and see God's hand in it, putting those puzzle pieces together? Aren't you thankful that God in his wisdom didn't give you everything that you asked him for? I'm sure I've asked God for some dumb things over the years, and, and, many, and many things that weren't dumb but weren't right for me in God's plans. And if, if you could go back to 10 years to 20-year-old Josh Vance in the year, uh, and tell him that in the year 2020, he would be pastoring a Southern Baptist church in South Alabama, I probably wouldn't have believed you. That's not what I thought the trajectory was at that point in my life. But now as I think back over the last 10 years, I, I can clearly see the hand of God putting the puzzle pieces together, moving people in and out of my life at the perfect time, gaining experience and knowledge through different circumstances and 
situations across four different states that we've lived in and so many other things along the way. And none of it's what I would have expected, but it's all his glorious, gracious, wonderful counsel that has led me here. And I bet you too, if you've walked with God for any number of years, can look back and and see how God in his infinite wisdom guided your life. Sometimes it's not easy though. Oftentimes it can be very difficult. But that's when we can double down on this truth that he is a wonderful counselor. I think Paul realized this writing to the Philippians as he sat in a prison. And in Philippians 1.12, he tells him, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest, of, and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. In what universe is being thrown in prison ever a good thing? It can only be a good thing if we have a wonderful counselor who can use even things that seem terrible to us to accomplish his plans. He is a wonderful counselor. Then the second title is Mighty God. Mighty God. This Messiah is fully God. We shouldn't think any less of the Son than we do of the Father. Hebrews 1 tells us that the world was created by God through the Son and that the entire universe is upheld by the word of his power. I don't exactly know what that means, but I know that it's obviously showing that, that the Son is the mighty God. And Colossians 2.9 tells us, For in him the fullness, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He is not a weak and fragile Messiah. He isn't just a powerful man. He is the almighty God. It is by his might that he accomplishes what he sets out to do, and nothing can impede him. There is nothing in all creation, no man or devil, that can hinder him from accomplishing his will. He is a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, and he is everlasting father. Now that might be an unexpected title here. In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, even God is rarely referred to as Father. But in the New Testament sense, why would Jesus, the Son, be referred to here as an everlasting Father? Well, in a sense, he is a Father to all who will believe. Isaiah 53:10 speaks of the Christ as seeing his offspring. We as believers are spiritually in a sense his offspring. He is the father of all who would believe in him for eternal life. But more than that, that title reflects the character of the Messiah. Not only is our Messiah wise and mighty, but he is a good father. And I know in a room this size that there's probably a a wide variety of reactions in your mind or in your heart to the word father. Uh, To some of you, that is a word that brings up pleasant memories, but for others, it brings up pain and heartache. Some of you grew up with a father who was exactly what a father was meant to be. Of course, he wasn't perfect, but he provided for you, protected you, loved you, cared for you, but maybe that wasn't your experience, And, and you had a father who was harsh or overbearing, a father who was there physically, but not there relationally, or maybe you've never known a father at all. We all come to the table with different connotations to that word and, and how it can affect how we relate to God as our father. But let me tell you that our Messiah is everything a father should be and more. He is the perfect provider. He is the perfect protector. He never uses you. He never abuses you. He never manipulates you. Instead, he cares for you. 
He doesn't punish you, but instead he graciously disciplines you for your own good. And ultimately, he wants what's best for us, even when we don't know what's best for us. He is a father that will never fail you and can never fail you. He will never let you down. And that's because he's also everlasting. He's the everlasting father. His righteous care and leadership will never end or fade. He's a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. He will bring peace in every way. Most importantly, he'll bring peace between us and God. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Before we're saved, the Bible describes us as enemies of God. There is hostility between us and God, and God is certainly not someone you want to be enemies with. There is tension and enmity. And if you're in here this morning and you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord, then that is what your current status is with God. You are his enemy. There is no other option. There's no neutral position found in the Bible. You're a child of God or a child of wrath. And God's enemies will be judged accordingly. But all that changes in an instant when you place your faith in Jesus Christ. Through him, we are reconciled to God. We find peace with God through him. He earns us that peace in his death on the cross. Isaiah 53, 5 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. He took the wrath of God due for us upon himself. He became the enemy of God in our place. And Jesus paid the ultimate price to give us peace. And that's the greatest peace we could ever know. But his peace doesn't just end there. Ultimately, his peace will extend over every inch of the universe, over every inch of creation. Isaiah 11 gives us more prophecies concerning the Messiah and what his rule and reign will eventually bring. And listen to what this says in Isaiah 11.6 or if you're in your Bible, just flip over a page maybe. Isaiah eleven six 6 says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and a weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. So some interesting pictures described there. Imagine a lion and a cow hanging out together, or a child playing with a cobra and being perfectly safe. And what it's emphasizing there is that he will restore peace to all creation. He will reverse the effects of the curse. He'll do it through his wisdom and his might and his goodness. That is our Savior. That is our Jesus. Yes, he came as a helpless baby in a manger, but don't ever let a nativity scene cause you to think less of our Christ. He is a wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God. He is the everlasting Father. He is our Prince of Peace. And all our hope is stored up in that identity. Let's finish by looking at verse 7. It says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will do this. 
Again, his government, his rule, his reign, his kingdom is so unlike any earthly government. Where governments here rise and fall and administrations turn over, his government will only continue to increase. I love how the commentary in the ESV study Bible, it puts it this way. The empire of grace will forever expand and every moment will be better than the last. God's kingdom is currently advancing and will continue to advance and expand just as it has for centuries. And he upholds it with righteousness and justice. How I wish we could say that about our earthly government. How we long for justice to be found at every level. How we long for leaders to lead in righteousness. It's a longing that's only fulfilled in the Messiah's government, in his kingdom. Because it's being ruled by the perfect leader, fully God, fully man. Miraculously wise, mighty, and omnipotent, eternally good and gracious, and the bringer of peace and rest. That's the gift that God has given us. God gave us his son, Jesus Christ, to be our Messiah. And I pray today in this season that we can rest in that hope. And in just a moment, we'll get to celebrate that hope that we have in our risen Lord, in our Messiah, by partaking in the Lord's Supper together. Would you pray with me?